0: Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Friday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. We left off on Wednesday with David's last words. We're in the midst of a series of five flashbacks into David's life. Flashbacks that highlight who David is. But David could not have done any of these great deeds he did during his life without his mighty men. And I promised you on Wednesday, we would meet those mighty men today on Friday. So we put in today at 2 Samuel, chapter 23, beginning at verse eight. Now, these are the names of David's mighty men. Yoshab Bezebeth, a teclam- Teclamite, was chief of the three, the three mighty men, the three musketeers. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Sounds like the Terminator, doesn't it? Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty men, one of the three musketeers, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at pas for battle. Remember that, when David stood up and taunted them and he had Saul's spear that had been by Saul's head after he and his armor bearer snuck into camp and stole it? Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. He was in battle with that sword, gripping it, and once he was finished, he couldn't open his hand. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi the Harite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Now think of that, a lentil field. And they're surrounded, David's men are surrounded by the enemy. And they flee. But one man, Shama, stood his ground in the middle of the field and he fought ferociously, drawing the other men back. Now during harvest time, 3 of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Now all this takes place when David is on the run, when he's an outlaw. These were his mighty men, the mercenaries he gathered around himself, his 600 men that hid out at Engedi in the caves of Engedi. These were great days. What a flashback. So during harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David, three of his senior officers at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in a stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and he said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. David is in the stronghold, that is, the caves of En-Gedi, where he confronts Saul, doesn't kill Saul, but cuts off the corner of his garment. Remember this, that story? David's in En-Gedi, a beautiful location. Every time we travel to Israel, we visit En-Gedi. And I tell the story of David and Saul at En-Gedi. And we hike up that box canyon to the very back where there's a waterfall, a fresh waterfall. en had ibex, not mountain goats. They're more like deer with different kind of long horns. But uh, there was meat on the hoof and fresh water. It was a good hideout. And you couldn't get into it without being seen. Well, David is there at the Caves of Vengeti. It was late one night. He was thinking about his life. He's been on the run. He's an outlaw, a wanted felon working for the Philistines. And David thought about the old days, about being a, a shepherd, about living at home in Bethlehem and, and the good life he had at home. He was getting nostalgic. And David longed for water. Well, he had plenty of water at En good water too. I've had the water there. But he said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem understand that. I, I remember back in my Marine Corps days, I was off in not some not-so-good places and uh, tired and hot and muddy. And, and I remember at home growing up, my dad worked in the steel mills in Pittsburgh, and he He would leave in the morning and work hard all day, a laborer in front of the furnaces, and when he'd come home at night, he had to come in through the back door and go down into the basement, take his clothes off, put them in the hamper, and hose himself off and put on clean clothes that my mother laid out for him. And then he would come upstairs to the kitchen, open the refrigerator, and he had a half-gallon milk bottle. We used to have the milk delivered back in those days, and he filled it with water in the morning, and he would put it in the refrigerator, and when he came home from work, he would take that bottle out and drink the whole thing. Good Pittsburgh water, <laughs> and uh, oh, God help you if you drank dad's water, and it wasn't there when he got home, but, uh, but I, I would think about that often, these hot, awful places, and uh, I think, oh, if I could only have a a cold drink of water from dad's bottle in the refrigerator, good Pittsburgh water, and uh, tired of canteens with pills stuck in it. Oh, if only I could have some of that good water. Well, the three mighty men, the three musketeers who were sitting with David said, "Well." Oh, we'll see you later, David. We're going to head off. They went to Bethlehem. They broke through the Philistine lines stealthily at night, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David at the caves of en They thought that was a wonderful prank. They bring it to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord as an offering to God. He said, Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David did not drink it. David looked at those three mighty men who had been with him from the very beginning magnificent men, magnificent warriors, great friends. And they thought it would be really funny to sneak into Bethlehem through enemy lines, draw water from the well, which is in the center of town, and bring it to David. You know, on the way back, they were laughing. And, and, uh, and when David took that water, he looked at those three mighty men and he said, I am not worthy to command such men as these. These magnificent men. I just love that story. And I can think of that water, that Pittsburgh water, even now. Now I go back to Pittsburgh, you can't even drink the water, drink bottled water. But I remember the story. Well, such were the exploits of the three mighty men, the three musketeers. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zariah, was chief of the three, He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Now, he was not held in greater honor than the three musketeers, but he became their commander, even though he was not included among them. And and here's here's my favorite. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men, He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now, pause on that one. David's mighty men, his 30 mighty men, the three musketeers and the others, they were like the knights around King Arthur's table, the table, the round table. And I imagine one winter's day in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's 2,500 feet above sea level, and it does snow in Jerusalem periodically. I've been there in the winter when there was snow. In fact, I've built a snowman right on the Mount of Olives. But uh, one day in the winter, David and his mighty men were around the the table planning the wars coming up in the spring, and uh, a messenger uh, came in right next to David and slipped him a note. And David looked at the note. Huh. And one of the three musketeers said, uh, What's up, David? And David said, Well, it seems like uh, we've got a lion in the cistern. A cistern's a deep hole in the rocks, cut into the rocks, a dry cistern that stores grain and is covered over. But apparently a lion came out of the mountains and was sniffing for food on this snowy day, and came up to the cistern and moved the covering with his paw, and looked down and saw the food supplies, and the snow was around the edge of the cistern, and as the lion was looking in, he slipped and fell in. And the messenger came to David and said, we got big trouble here, there's a lion down in the cistern, and he's not a happy lion. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, said, let me see that note. Huh. Gave it back to David Said, and he said, I'll be back. And Benaiah went out to the cistern, looked in it, saw the lion down there, roaring at him, pawing at him. And Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, leapt down into the cistern, drew his kbar knife, killed the lion, tossed him over the edge of the cistern, climbed out, went back to the round table and said, I'm back. I just love this story. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabziel. He also struck down a huge Egyptian. Now, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He, too, was as famous as the three mighty men, the three musketeers. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the musketeers. And David put him in charge of his personal bodyguard. Beniah son of Jehoiada, the most trusted man that David had in charge of David's personal bodyguard, the Karathites, and the Pelothites, the mercenaries that went back to the days of the caves of En Gedi, back to the outlaw days. Well, among the 30 were, and we have a list of the other men among the 30, and I noted this list earlier when we looked at uh, uh, Ahithophel. Ahithophel is noted in the list. One of David's mighty men was Eliam, son of Ahithophel the Gilonite, and uh, and. Uriah the Hittite. And we noted, why did Ahithophel betray David? Ahithophel was the father of Eliam and Uriah had married Eliam's daughter, Bathsheba. Remember that? Well, there's there's drama and suspense all throughout this list of David's mighty men. So one more flashback. David counts... His fighting men. Again, the anger of Israel burned against, uh, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now David's going to take a census of all the men 20 to 50 years old capable of going to war with David. Why would he do that? When David needed men, men came to David. Men came to David. But David, at this point in his life as king, his kingship went to his head. You know, we saw that with the Bathsheba story. You know, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David was at home, sitting at home, uh, taking a siesta, and being a peeping tom in Bathsheba's house. Yes, you know, so things happen to men who get really successful. And David, he's at the very peak of, of his kingship and the power has gone to his head and he wants to be able to field a million man army. Does he have the men to do it? And he takes a census. He's warned not to, but he does anyhow. And it was a foolish thing. Joab, against his better judgment, carried out the census. And we read in chapter 24, verse nine, Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king in Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. A million-man army, 1,300,000 men. But David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. He said to the Lord, I, 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 I've sinned greatly. This, was, this is my ego speaking. I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Yes, you sinned and there will be punishment. I give you three choices. So Gad went to David and he said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, These are three terrible choices. I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to 'er Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity. And he said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. You sinned, David. I'm giving you three choices. Three days of plague he chose. On that day, Gad went to David and he said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up and as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Arunah saw, looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant to buy your threshing floor david answered the threshing floor is always on a high spot because the grain is tossed in the air the wind blows and it takes the chaff away and the the good grain falls to the ground it's always on a high location why has my lord the king come i want to buy your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my Lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, uh, the threshing sledges, uh, and oxen for the uh, yokes for the wood. O oh, king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arunah, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. David made a wise decision. The plague came because of sin. David made it right by confessing to God, by making restitution to God, and by sacrifice. And the Lord took the plague away." It was a three-day plague. And as I'm recording this, I wonder about this whole coronavirus thing. It's been going on for, my goodness, nine months now. Maybe we can learn something from this flashback story of King David. The flashbacks. I remember Watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. What a great movie. And I hadn't seen it in years. And then on a trip to Istanbul, flying LA to Istanbul nonstop on Turkish air, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was a movie of choice on the airplane. So I watched it again after decades of having not seen it. And remember, it's the adventures of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, Robert Redford and Paul Newman, and uh, they are so great together. And at the end, uh, when the two of them are in Bolivia, holed up in a shack with the entire Bolivian army surrounding them, and uh, and, and Paul Newman says, "What are we going to do next? <laughs> like, like we have a future here, right?" They get up. And they go out the door, guns blazing, as the entire Bolivian army opens fire on them. And that scene freezes on the screen. And then we have a series of flashbacks into the life of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Episodes from within the movie. That's exactly what we have here at the end of 2 Samuel. Like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid five flashbacks into David's earlier life that really illustrates who he is, highlights that let us know David in a much better way. This is great. Now, we're not yet at the end of the story of King David. That'll come in a lesson or two. But uh, we'll move next time on Monday into 1 Kings. And when David dies, who will become king? After all, it should have been Absalom if it had been David's choice. But who will be king? David's an old man now. He will die and will make the transition, moving up to the death of David over the next few podcasts. So thank you for being with me. We're right at the end here on Friday. And it's been great being here with you. I love doing this, telling these stories, uh, and telling them for you. So tell your friends about the podcast, uh, get word out, and uh, we we have a a lot of listeners now, and it would be nice to have uh, even more to share the gospel message and to share scripture, the word of God, with all of our families and friends. Okay, blessings to you, and I will see you on Monday. Bye-bye now.